Amen. Amen. Well, you know what? The Bible says honor such men. Honor men like David Parsons. Honor women like Kathy Parsons. You know what they're doing? They're doing what the church has always done. They are bringing the help and the hope of Jesus to people who need it. They're doing both. Have you heard that? They're, they're saying, hey, we're coming with good words. Here's a Bible. We're going to tell and teach you about Jesus. That's good words. And then here's good works. Here's a soccer net. Here's a playground. Here's some picnic tables. We're going we're gonna to move in. You know, it, it's interesting. Uh, Christmas is about Jesus coming to us because we could not go to him. If you want to know what, is ma- what makes Christianity different than any other religion, it's that we cannot put a ladder up and climb our way to God, that God took the ladder, put it down, and climbed his way to us. And, and I love the phrase that David Parsons says. He says that they can't come to us. They're never coming to this building, so we're going to go to them. What a, what a powerful picture of the gospel. And, and, you know, Christmas is about two things. It's about Jesus Christ coming to us, and so now we see that picture of what's called incarnational ministry. Have you ever heard that phrase, incarnational ministry? That's what David and Kathy Parsons do. Incarnate, carne, flesh, meat. That, that's what that means. It means that I become like those I want to reach and save. That's exactly, what did Jesus do to reach humanity? He became a human. And we have to become like those we're going to minister to. So what a powerful idea. Moving into the neighborhood, taking over an apartment, teaching the gospel, demonstrating and declaring, showing and speaking. The second thing Christmas is about is about generosity, right? That's what it's about. It's about how generous God was toward me in Christ. And when I realized that, it's like, why do we give gifts at Christmas? Well, there's a lot of answers and reasons for that. One of the reasons is because God's a gift giver. We're made in his image. We love to give gifts. And so we are going to be an incredibly generous church. Here's what we're asking. We're asking for every person who calls Two Cities Church home to give a one-time gift above and beyond normal tithes and offerings. And we're going to give 25% of it to David Parsons, 25% of it to Jeremy Woods and his church plant, who you heard, and, uh, and 50% of it to India. Now, let me just tell you some encouraging stories. About two weeks ago, we had a young couple in our church give $14,000 to hold the rope. And I just was overwhelmed. And I, and I called them each individually. And I said, tell me, what was God doing in your heart? It's one of my favorite conversations to have. What was God doing in your heart for you to give a gift like that? And they just said, you know what? They basically, they didn't say it in exact this language, but they just basically said, we have an abundance mindset, not a scarcity mindset, right? You know what a scarcity mindset is. Many of you have that. I have to have everything. I have to keep everything. There's not a lot of stuff. I have to get all I can, can all I get, sit on the can, (laughs) okay? Give it to nobody, The abundance mindset says, God is generous, God is good, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, God owns the hills as well, I want to be generous. And what they said to me is they said, we knew we could not outgive God. And they said, we had committed, we knew a bonus was coming, and we just committed a portion of it. And it was so much larger than we could have imagined. And we are just so grateful for how God has blessed us, and we want to be a blessing to other people. So so our ask is, we've got 11 days left, we want every person to say, you know, because we don't get to, uh, we don't give to get a blessing, we, get, we give to be a blessing. We want everyone to experience the blessing it's going to be when we get to make that phone call uh, in early January and tell all three of our partners that we're, we're, we're helping them do a ton of new gospel ministry, help them go further faster in 2021. So let's pray for that. And then just a real quick, figured one's the best time to tell you this. I had a little bit of a ski knee injury this week. So if you see me hobbling around on the stage a little bit, I'm okay, but uh, it might be a few weeks of me hobbling, but all, all is good. But let's, let's pray for our ministry partners and then let's dive into this series that we're in, uh, in, the, in the Christmas story. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for David and Kathy Parsons. And again, I just want to honor them, Lord. I want to thank you for men and women like them 
Today we're going to be talking about a story of Simeon and Anna and two old people that you used mightily at the end of their age. I thank you for the Parsons that when so many other people are not just retiring from their jobs, but retiring from their lives, we have a, we have a model of an old couple investing their lives in the next generation. Thank you, Lord. I pray you'd bless them. I pray we would honor them with our words. We'd honor them with our prayers. We'd honor them with our giving. Lord, we thank you that you are such a generous, good, gracious God. We're thankful that Christmas is about you coming to us and you being generous toward us, Lord. And we know that it's possible to give without loving, but it's impossible to love without giving. Lord, make us a loving, generous church. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, you can type to, turn to Luke chapter two, uh, whether you're joining us online in your house, in the VHQ venue, or if you are in the lobby or now in this room, welcome. We have been in a series over Christmas called Do You See What I See? Looking at different perspectives of Christmas. Week one was a young teenage couple. We just talked about, this is very important. We talked about how Christianity is for not just old people, but it's also for young people. Last week, you heard about the shepherds and the angels, really about the shepherds. And what's interesting about the shepherds is I heard one commentator said, what a shepherd would be today would be first generation immigrants who put the roof on your house and then left. And you didn't really pay much attention to them. You probably didn't talk to them. You probably couldn't. They probably spoke a different language. They were there for a few days and left. It's like, that's who God appeared to, the outcast, the overlooked, the technically invisible to society. And then today, what's interesting is we're talking about the least known Christmas story today, Luke chapter two. It's about two people that I guarantee if you, if you talk about Christmas, people go, well, I know about baby Jesus and I know about the shepherds and I know about the wise men and maybe I know about Herod. Of course, I know about Mary and Joseph, but I don't know about, about Simeon and Anna. Now, why is that? Because they're old. We live in a society that does not value old people, that does not care about old people. We're not saying nursing homes are wrong, but people just say, hey, if you're old, would you go live somewhere else and die somewhere else? And not cause, I don't want to take care of you. I don't want you to cause me a lot of pain. I, I want those who are aging and dying, I don't want to see, right? Because we value, what do we value? Youth, right? You, I want you to know this. We are the first generation where parents are trying to dress like their kids. That started with the boomers, where people continually try to look younger. And so what I want to do today is I want to honor Simeon and Anna, because they are both very, very old. We'll get into this. But God is not done with them. And the reason that we continue to love and care for every person, every person's made in the image of God. Yes, white, black, and brown. Yes, pre-born, unborn. Yes, old, young, elderly. And I would say if, if the Old Testament was written today, it wouldn't just be the fatherless and the widow and the orphan and the poor. It would also be the elderly that are often forgotten. So with that said, let's look at Luke 2. Verse 22, Luke 2, 22, we're picking up in the story. Mary, Joseph, they're, they're, they, they're an incredibly godly couple. Look at this. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So what we see is the greatest gift that God gives children are godly parents, right? Well, the greatest gift <laughs> that, that God gives to Jesus is he gives him very godly parents, here they are obeying the Lord, right? No, no one in this room grew up poor who had godly parents. And, and what we see with Joseph and Mary is at this point, Jesus would be about six to seven weeks old. That's when you dedicated your child, six to seven weeks old. Why? Because we know this even today, six to seven weeks is when you basically bring your child and your life, you, you re-engage society after your kid is six or seven weeks old. 
Now that is a new message for some millennials, right? <laughs> millennials re-engage their lives when their kids turn six or 17, uh, usually, <laughs> right? It's like, that, that's what happens if you have multiple kids. And you no, know, but seriously, it's months, sometimes years after a millennial will have a kid that they'll re-engage their life. Well, here we have Mary Joseph. They've got a six-week-old. They make it. Guess how long the journey is? 140 miles. Look in verse 22. It says they go up to Jerusalem. Why? Because you always go up to Jerusalem. <laughs> Even if you go down, you're going up. Because the idea is you're going to the temple. And so they make this 140-mile journey. They're young. They're poor. It's cold. They're making this journey. It's 140 miles. They get there. They go to the temple. Now, why the temple? Well, because the temple is where you were with God's people. Now, this is interesting. I know we're in the middle of, you know, 2020 has been such a crazy year, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like a dog year. We've been in, remember, remember two weeks to slow the curve and stop the spread? That was nine months ago, okay? <laughs> We're still here. And, and what's interesting is, is I want to talk for a moment about the importance of gathering. Now, it could be in person, it could be online. But, but what's interesting is they did a, the Gallup poll, which is not a Christian organization, they did a nationwide study on mental health. And it's behind me right here. And basically what they did is they asked, they asked, who's doing better with their mental health in 2020 versus 2019? Well, guess what? I mean, I, I kind of made this study easy for you guys. You can see what I circled, okay? But if, you, but if you look at this study, here's what I want you to see. It doesn't matter if you're white, black, or brown. Nope, everyone's doing bad. Doesn't matter if you have more money. Nope, if you have more money, you're probably doing worse, according to this study. Because you had more to lose. Doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. Nope, does not. What is the, who is the only person on earth doing better mentally than last year? The person who weekly worships. Profound. Now it can happen online. It could be in person. It could be in the VH venue. It could be VHQ venue. It could be in the lobby, whatever. And here's the, there's two keys to worship. It needs to be a priority and then it needs to be the majority, right? That's the two things. Now, does it matter if it's monthly worship? No, it doesn't seem to affect it in the same way. Right, well, and they, they did another study. I can't get into this right now. They did a whole other study. Bible reading doesn't tend to affect a person's life until they do it four days a week. Wow. Oh, as soon as it becomes a majority, it changes your life. It's like, well, what, what the average American goes to church if they call themselves a Christian 1.8 times a year, or 1.8 times a month. Of course, it's not making any difference in their life. It's not become. It's not a priority, and it's not become the majority in their life. What you see with Mary and Joseph, here they are. They've got a young baby. They're re-engaging society. They're going up to Jerusalem. They're making the 140-mile uh, journey. Why? Because they want to be in God's place, with God's people, in God's presence. So look what happens in verse 23. So they go up, and here's what happens. It says, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now, this is interesting. It's like, well, why that, that fact? Well, it tells us that when they dedicated the, when you would dedicate your kid to the Lord, you'd also make a sacrifice to the Lord. Like, Lord, I'm sacrificing you. I'm trusting you. But what's interesting is, is it says to Joseph and Mary, it was two turtle doves or, or, um, or two pigeons. Now, that one is not the normal sacrifice. That, that was the sacrifice that was allowable for very poor people. And this is important to understand because, I mean, this is really something worth thinking about for a while. Is Jesus Christ was poor. He grew up poor. He grew up so poor, you could not understand how, I could not use the words to describe how poor Jesus grew up. Jesus grew up, here's what that means. Uh, it's not a sin to be poor. People are poor for lots of different reasons. If you're poor, it does not mean God's against you, right? It's good to know it's not a sin to be sick and it's not a sin to be poor. And God cares for the poor and God has a heart for the poor. And God is interesting also as he says, hey, look, if you don't have a lot of money, here's the sacrifice for you, right? Because we, we, you know, people give different amounts, but it needs to be equal sacrifice. Different amounts equal sacrifice. 
This is why the Bible teaches percentage giving, right? Because I know it always gets weird when I start talking about numbers, but here we go. If, if, you, if you make $50,000 a year and you give $500 a month, that's a little more than 10%. That would be very generous. Now, what if you make $150,000 a year and you give 500 a month? Are you as generous as the person who made 50 and gives 500? Well, probably not. If all things are equal in situations, probably not. What happens is, is this is the sad truth about life and about churches and about people and about Christians and non-Christians. The more people give, the more people make, the less they give across the board. It's a strange phenomenon. They feel like they're giving a lot because it's a large number, but it's so small percentage to anything else. There's absolutely no sacrifice built in. What we see at the very beginning of Jesus' life was a willingness of his parents to sacrifice a willingness of his parents to model generosity. So they give two pigeons, they give two turtle doves. Now look what it says here. It says, this is important. I'm gonna reread it because I want you to see this. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who, who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. Now I could go on, but four different times the law is mentioned. And this is important. There are theological concepts that I wanna talk to you about because they're super important. And here's the, here's the reality. Jesus Christ had to be born under the law. That's the language of the New Testament. Jesus Christ was born under the law. What that means is from the moment of his birth until his death, he lived under the law of God. So uh, th this means that everything that, uh, his whole life mattered, not just his death. It's kind of like this time of year, everyone's watching uh, or seen the wonderful, A Wonderful Life. And George Bailey in A Wonderful Life, at the very end of A Wonderful Life, he basically looks back on his life and he realizes that his entire life mattered. It's this beautiful imagery where he goes, every event, every relationship, every action, every deed mattered. Well, that's when you look back on the life of Jesus, you're like, everything he did mattered. And here's why this is super practical. Because every once in a while, something's gonna happen in your life. Maybe you'll wake up at two or three in the morning and you won't have your screen in front of you and you'll be awake and no one else will be awake and you'll be with you and yourself and your thoughts. And that's a scary place to be. That's why most Americans never wanna go there. But it's you alone with your thoughts. And what you'll realize in those times is how much you failed. So I know people that regret whole seasons of their life. They regret being single. They regret when they dated that person. They regret when they were in college. They regret that whole season they lied. They regretted that vacation, what they did on it, what they did on their business travel trip. It's like, it's like what, what ends up happening. So what do you do in that time? You just go, well, we all make mistakes. No, you go, okay, well, thank goodness that I'm leaning and trusting on the life and obedience of somebody else. Because just because you sin doesn't mean God has a different standard on how he judges. You're not judged by your feelings. That'd be nice. You're not judged by your intentions. You wish, <laughs> we all wish. You're not, you're not judged by what the celebrities say is cool in culture, you're judged by the law of God. And so this is why it's so important. You're gonna, if you read Luke or Matthew and you read the life of Jesus, he's always obeying fully the law of the Lord. So here he goes, they're obeying. And then I want you to see what happens in verse 25. Here's what it says. Now there was a man, here we go. We're introduced to this guy, this nobody. We don't even get his last name. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Now here's what we know. Simeon, we'll stop there. We, we don't know a lot of things. We know he's old because he's about to say, I can depart in peace. I've been waiting to see this for a long time. So he's about to die shortly after seeing Christ. We would know that he's a Jewish man. Jewish men weren't allowed to trim their beard. So he would be an old man with a big white beard. So you've heard before, there's an old man with a big, big white beard at the center of Christmas. Amen, Simeon, okay? 
You thought it was Santa, it was actually Simeon, okay? So Simeon is this old man, he's got a big white beard, and he shows up, and it's very, very interesting, because I want to talk about this for a while, and we're going to see this. He's going to interact with the young couple. This is going to be a great picture of the church. We're going to see later Anna, who she's old and she's a widow. We're going to see the old with the young. We're going to see the young with the old. I want, to, I want us to really think about this because this is an important concept that the world doesn't get that we need to talk about here because almost everywhere else you go, it'll be completely age segregated, right? Like you could, go to, you could go to college and not see a kid for four years. I mean, it's really, really possible. We, and, and when people get old, just put them somewhere else, put them in some other community, right? And all the young people go over here. It's like, why are we together? Because the Bible teaches the strength of the youth with the wisdom of the old. Now, we love being young so much. Our generation does, right? How many of you, raise your hand if you're excited about getting old. There's always like that one person who's like, yeah, because I can do whatever I want when I'm old. Okay, yeah. Um, no, but, but no, no, one, no one raised their hand in this service. No one raised their hand in the other service. Well, this is interesting because what happens is, and this is, I want to explain this to us because I want us to have the language and I want to articulate some things that you've seen but maybe haven't been able to talk about and explain and understand. Is Here's what happens in life. When you're young... This is what you do. This is what you should do. And if you don't do this, then by the time you turn 40, you'll have a midlife crisis. This is what happens. When you're young, you trade in your youth for a valuable skill set to society, the church, and the next generation. That's what you do. You don't play around for cheap pleasure for 20 years. Okay? You don't forget about the second half of your life. Most modern people forget about the second half of their life. I don't want to get married. It's half your life. I don't want to have kids. It's a third of your life. People don't think about those things anymore. So here's what happens. So what you do is you take, you take your youth and you trade it in. It's like, well, all these people who are doing medical school and residency and fellowship and attending. I talked to one guy. He said, I was in, I was in school for 16 years from college. I, I didn't have my first job until I was 36. And you know what that person did? And they did the right thing. They traded their youth in. It's gone. You're on your way to four. You traded your youth in for a skill set that then makes you valuable. So what, 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 what do old people have? They have two things that we don't talk about. They have wisdom and they have wealth. Right? Everyone goes, the dreaded 1%, the dreaded 1%. They're all old. All of them. Almost every person in the 1% is super old. It's like, what have they been doing? They've been accumulating wealth their whole life. Of course they got a lot of money. Would you trade your youth for their wealth? No, you wouldn't. Something we're thinking about. So what we need in the church is people who value both youth and who value age. Now, what I want us to see in Simeon is Simeon is a good example of how to be old without being mean, right? Well, what are old people known for? They're known for kind of being mean. Get off, yelling, get off my yard, being grumpy, being super cynical and super critical of the next generation Right? So if the youth have problems, about it, they don't understand, they don't know me, they don't have anything to say, I'll Google it and I'll talk to grandma. That's the younger generation. The older, the older generation goes, well, they're not listening and they're wild and they're, whatever, they're always on their devices. Well, what I want to talk about is I want us to look at, at Simeon because he's a great example of getting old. Look what he says, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So it, it talks about his inward character. Do you see that? We know almost nothing about this man externally. We're only told about his internal nature, right? Because though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly, Paul says, we're being renewed day by day. 
There's three things that you need to do as you're growing old. And we're all growing old, right? We're all growing old. You know, I'd like to still think I'm young, and I kind of am a little bit. I'd like to think so. But, you know, but I'm 36, I'm headed toward 40, and I, 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 just, I know I'm going to continue to, like you all do, continue to age. And so there's three things we have to do. The, the first thing is we have to continue to be committed to growing spiritually. We have to be continued to growing, right? That's the amazing thing. Though the, the, th- Throughout your life, your body and your soul are going in different directions. Did you know that? Your body is wasting away. That's what happens. I don't care how much kale you eat, okay? It's wasting away. <laughs> um, how much bottled water you drink, okay? It, it's wasting away, but your soul is able to grow. This is, every once in a while, you'll meet. You'll meet somebody, right? You'll meet somebody in their 60s or 70s or 80s, and they are beautiful, not pretty. We're obsessed with pretty in our culture, right? We're, this is why it's just like no woman wants to get old because it's all about being pretty. We forgot beauty. Beauty is I love the Lord so much. He's changed my life so much. There's a, there's a, there's a beauty in knowing and being loved by God across time. So the first thing is we have to keep growing, okay? You got, what books are you reading? You know, as you're getting older, what are you learning about? What new things are you discovering? You can't just spend all your time on Fox News or CNN, and be upset about everything. That's, you're scaring us. Oh, okay, you're scaring us. Don't do that. Spend your time growing. Okay, here's the second thing. Look, it says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was future focused. How, how do you stay vibrant as you get old? You have to continue to be future focused. I had the honor of, uh, he's still alive. I have the honor of, of getting to spend a little bit of time with a guy in our city named Stu Epperson Sr. Stu Epperson Sr. is a very godly man. Many of you may know him or heard of him. <clears throat> he's in his mid 80s vibrance, at least last I saw, still riding his bike, discipling men, investing in global missions, just, just, just a huge heart for ministry. And I asked him a couple years ago, I said, I'd like to be like you when I'm in my 80s. And I said, what, what's the key? What's the trick? And he said, your dreams always must be bigger than your memories. It was, he didn't even need to think of it. He didn't even need to pray about it. He just knew it. He said, that's what happens. He says, the, and you'll see this, the older people get, the more they talk about the past. And it's really sad You'll meet people and they completely live in the past. Everything's about when their kids were young. It's like, well, your kids are grown now. What's your vision now? Right, I mean, who's the the saddest person on earth is the guy still talking about his high school letter jacket. Right? We're all like, don't be that guy. Don't be the person who is so obsessed with the past, so obsessed with what God used to do or what you used to do or all these funny memories from your, it's like, you know, I I hate when we tell people college are the best years of your life. It's like, no, it's not. Let's hope it's not. It's four years, very early on in your life, but you gotta be future oriented. And the third thing is, and we're gonna see this in a moment, he invested in the next generation. Do you see that? He's going to grab Jesus, pray for him and speak a word of God to a young couple. That's exactly what we need you to do. We need, we need the people in here who are older, we need them to, to initiate to the young people in our church and vice versa. And we need them to invest in the next generation. I cannot tell you how many people come up to me because I always ask two questions when I meet somebody for the first time. You know, how'd you hear about two cities? Why'd you come back? And, uh, and basically one of the common answers I get for people over 50 is we're here because of the young people. We're here because I got a heart for single moms. We're here because I wanna help you moms raise their kids. We're here because I love college students and I got invested in them and I made a lot of mistakes when I was in college and I don't want these kids to make the same mistakes. That's multi-generational leadership. And so what we see here, I want you to see what happens when he, when he interacts with Mary and Joseph. Here we go, look at verse 26. It says this. 
Um, and it had been revealed to him, this is Simeon, by the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to see is he's old, but he's very spirit-led. You can be a very old person, and you can be very sensitive to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Verse 27. And he came in the Spirit. Second time the Holy Spirit is mentioned as leading Simeon. He came in the, he came in the Spirit to, into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child of Jesus, so you've got, you've got this intersection, right? Look what happens here. So he's being led by the Spirit. At the same time, the parents are coming in. What are they led by? The parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. What happens here is Simeon's led by the Spirit. And over here, we have Mary and Joseph led by Scripture. How, it's like, do you, you want your life to be adventurous? Do you want your life to be exciting? Do you want your life to be meaningful? Say, Lord, would you lead me by the Scripture? Would you lead me by the Spirit? We have an objective word fixed outside of us that doesn't change. We have a subjective spirit inside of us leading us to obey that objective word. And we have this beautiful interaction where they meet. Now look what happens. In verse 28 says this, Simeon or he, he took him, that being Jesus, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, now, now somehow he takes this baby from them, okay? They've never met him before. This is what old people can do, okay? They can do whatever they want. Joseph gives him a little hand sanitizer and the whole thing's okay, okay? He's holding the baby. Verse 29 says this, Lord, now you are letting your servant, this is how we know he's old. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He's basically gonna say, because Jesus Christ is born, I can die. Because Jesus Christ came to the earth, I can leave earth with peace. He says this, Lord, you, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Here's what Simeon's saying. I had one main thing on my bucket list, right? We have this whole idea of bucket list now, right? I had one main thing that was on my bucket list that I wanted to do before I died. I wanted to see Jesus Christ by faith. And I looked it up. Do you know what the top five things on American, Americans' bucket lists are? Number one, see the Northern Lights. Not as good as seeing Jesus, but okay, no Northern Lights. Uh, number two, get a tattoo. Number three, run a marathon. Number four, go on a cruise. Number five, swim with dolphins. I mean, they're not that great. I mean, like, this is it? This is, this is, this is the collective consciousness of America on, on what you want to do before you die? And, and this, this idea that we need a bigger vision. Now, this is interesting. So how does he know it's Jesus, right? It's like, was Jesus in a golden fleece diaper? No, the answer is no to that question. Was Jesus glowing? The answer is no. Did Jesus have the same mark on his forehead that Harry Potter had on his? No, he did not. Okay, what, what you see, here's the whole point. You see him by faith. A lot of times we think if we could have just seen Jesus then, we would have believed, really? Lots of people saw him and didn't believe. It's like you have to actually see Christ with the eyes of faith. And so what happens is he sees him by faith, he prays for him, and then he gives a hard word. But I wanna, I wanna look at one more thing before he does it. I want you to see what he says here. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. So basically, I, I just said this, but he says, because Christ is born, I can die. That one of the signs of being a true believer in Jesus Christ, being a true Christian, is your ability to face death with peace. Do you know there's a whole branch of psychology called TMT, Terror Management Theory. It's one of the most popular, popular and pervasive lines of psychology. That's very interesting if you read it, and I've read some of it. If you read it, the whole idea, it's a whole psychology built on most people spend their entire lives denying their own death. 
And there's a lot of different ways that we do it that we don't want to talk. Wait, 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 like, I mean, think about it. Think about it. What do we do? It's like, well, we don't want to talk about death. We don't want, we don't want to think about death. We want to use euphemisms for death. This is one of the reasons, you know, I've done a lot more weddings than I've done funerals. I much more enjoy doing funerals, as strange as that may sound. Because no, when I'm at the wedding, everyone's like, when is the sermon over? And can we go to the reception? That's why we're here, you know? Let's just be honest. That's why people go to weddings. But when you're at a funeral with somebody, right, the, the book of Ecclesiastes says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of laughter. Why? Because you can learn a lot. Every time I speak at a funeral, everybody's leaning in because their fa- friend or family member's in the casket. And they're confronted with this idea of death. Now, how do we, there's only four or five ways you can deal with death. I mean, historically. Number one is people deny it. I mean, they can't ultimately do that because it's going to happen to them. But they deny it. They don't think about it. They, you know, they try to live as long as they can. You know, here's another way. Uh, people just say that this life is all there is. So in death, all I do is I disappear. They embrace Darwinian, atheistic evolution. I came from nobody. I'm here for no purpose. I'm going nowhere. So when life gets too painful, I quit. It leads to depression, it leads to nihilism, and it goes against everything that we feel and know inside of us. The third thing that people do is they say, I'm gonna live on in some other form or fashion. There's reincarnation, there is, uh, I'm gonna live on in the hearts and minds of those who love me. Gross. I mean, (laughs) that's it? You're gonna live, you, in your whole life, in your soul, in all that you want, in all of your meaning, that's what you're hoping for, to live on in the hearts and minds of those who loved you for a couple more decades? There's, there's others who think, uh, who say, well, what I'll do is, and this is an old, 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 old. It's amazing how many things are, are just recycled versions of an old thing. So the, the old idea of a fountain of life or the drinking of the elixir that would let you live forever here has just become cryogenics. Has just become somehow science will save us. Maybe they can upload my consciousness into an avatar. I mean, there's, there's like very smart people who are hoping and believing in that. And, and the fifth option for, for death is that on the other side of death is Jesus Christ who went through death for me. I was, at a, I was at a funeral where the man pointed to the man in the casket. I wasn't doing this funeral, but the guy was, another pastor was. He pointed to the man in the casket. He says, he says everywhere where John has been, Jesus Christ already went. And I thought, what a savior we have in that moment. Because we have a savior who actually went into death, has actually been in death, through death, has been on the other side of death. So our hope is resurrection, new body, new life with Jesus and every Christian forevermore. So he says, I can depart in peace. I want you to see what he says next. He goes this, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. So once he experiences the gospel for himself, he wants to get it to other people. Isn't that amazing? This is the first missional statement in the New Testament about the gospel going out. Simeon is in one sense the first missionary, the first evangelist. And then he says this, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. Now this is interesting. This is, and this is the role of mentors, of coaches, of disciples, is to love, to encourage, to hold the baby, to pray for, but then also to speak a sometimes timely, sometimes difficult, sometimes hard word. Here's what he says. This, this is, by the way, almost nobody knows this is part of the Christmas story. Verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. 
He says, two, he says a personal thing and then a, and then a bigger thing. The personal thing, he says, is a sword, a sword will strike your soul. Basically, he's telling Mary, it's going to be very difficult for you to be the mother of Jesus Christ. It's going to be very emotionally painful for you to do this. Here's why. Because Jesus Christ is going to be mistreated and misunderstood most of his life. Because Jesus Christ is going to face an unjust trial and he is going to die an innocent death at a very young age. He's basically saying this, Mary, the worst thing that that arguably could happen to a human is going to happen to you. You're going to outlive your child. Some of you have experienced that. You know, and, and they, they say that when you, lose your, when you lose your spouse, you lose your present. When you lose your uh, parents, you lose your past. And when you lose your kids, you lose your future. And Mary's in this moment where she doesn't fully realize all this, but she's, it's going to be, this is the, well, see, what happens with Christmas is we always think of Christmas as, really good feelings and lights and gifts and hot cocoa and great memories and family all around. And that, that's, that's part of Christmas. That's a great part of Christmas. But there's also a difficulty to Christmas. There's a controversy to Christmas. There's a conflict with Christmas. There's a division in Christmas. There's a conflict in Christmas. And it shows up, I want to read it to you one more time in verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, this is what he, these are the first prophetic words about Jesus Christ and his ministry. And said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Translation, lots of people are not going to like Jesus. Right? I mean, Christianity, just so you know, has never, ever, ever, ever been cool and never will be cool. Jesus Christ is simultaneously the most loved and hated person on earth. He is the most polarizing figure. Just start saying his name. If you say God, everyone's okay. If you start saying Jesus Christ, he's a polarizing figure for two reasons. What he says about himself and what he says about you. What he says about himself, what he says about humanity. I mean, he, the claims that Jesus Christ makes, if you really read it, not the domesticated version of Jesus that you see on television and in the media. But if you, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you read all that Jesus says about himself, that he's the son of God, that he's equal with God, that he demands obedience, that if you don't believe in him, you're going to die in your sins, that he's equal with the father, that he's the only way, the only truth, the only life, all of those things are offensive. That's half it. Then it's all the things he says about you and me. You know, he has this one statement where he's, talking, he's teaching on prayer and he goes, if you who are evil give good gifts to your kids. It's like, did he just call us evil? Did he just say that so casually? You who are evil, do, do give good gifts to your kids? Well, he said we do good things, but we're also evil. So it's kind of both, and we kind of, you know, you know that, right? Evil runs down the center of every, good and evil runs down the heart and center of every man and woman. Jesus tells us what we're evil. Jesus tells us that we need to repent. Jesus tells us that we can't save ourselves. Jesus tells us that we're going to be judged. And so what happens, and Tim Keller says this, pastor in New York City, he says what happens is before you can have peace with Christ, you're going to have internal conflict. Anytime the gospel comes, and you watch for people, I mean, if you ever share the gospel with people and really the, the full gospel, no holding back, you're going to see, if they're being honest, you're going to see the conflict that they're going to feel. Sometimes it might be internal, sometimes it might be external. They're going to feel the conflict of, okay, am I willing to repent? Am I willing to say Jesus Christ is Lord? Am I willing to admit I can't save myself? Am I willing to follow him my whole life? That, that's the inner conflict. And what we need to understand, and this isn't because I think we're living, and I'm not a doomsday person, and 
COVID, no COVID, this is true, is just that we're, we're living in a time where Christians are becoming more and more the minority in the culture. Where what we believe is seeming stranger and stranger and stranger, even though like everything we believe, Christians have believed for 2,000 years. But in the last 10 or 15 years, first in the north, Northwest and the Northeast, right, it always starts in cities and near college campuses and near coast. That's three areas. Cities, college campuses, and coasts and spreads. Is, is a looking at Christianity and, and feeling like it is, here's the word you'll hear, intolerant, right? And, we, and it's because the new tolerance is I affirm, I approve, and I celebrate you. And Christianity says, we can't talk about tolerance in that way. We can talk about repentance, which is you need to change, I need to change, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we all need to repent, no one's good, everyone's bad, only Jesus is good. But what I wanna talk about for a few minutes left, because we've got to talk about conflict and controversy and, and, and all this, and you're gonna have it internally as, as you commit to scripture and commit to repenting. You're gonna have it with the world as you say out loud what the Bible says, and you're just saying, hey, I'm just the messenger. I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. <laughs> but, but then, you know, what we, want, what we really wanna work on is not having unnecessary conflict and controversy in the church. And unfortunately, this year has just been a difficult year for the churches, for anybody, Right? It's like, because no matter what you do, half the people hate it, right? So we just blame everything on COVID. It's COVID's fault, COVID's fault, COVID's fault. No, but it's like, well, whether it's, well, it's like we're still fighting about everything. I'm not just talking about, I'm not talking about necessarily you guys and me and all. I'm just saying, our, our, but Christians are, the nation is, we're still fighting. We're fighting about the vaccine. I'm not even taking sides. I'm saying people are fighting about it. People are still fighting about masks. People are still fighting about lockdowns and not lockdowns. And it's exhausting, and so what I want to talk about is, is how do we work through this? Because there is going to be conflict. And, and Ken Sandy in his book, Peacemaker, he talks about different types of people and how they deal with conflict. He said, first, there's the peace breaker, okay? You don't have to raise your hand if you're a peace breaker, but some of you are, okay? Peace breakers are eights on the Enneagram. They will normally run after you, uh, knock you over, jump on top of you three times and not even know they did it, okay? They tend to love conflict and they tend to want to win, Okay, so peace breakers, they don't mind telling you they're wrong. They don't mind telling you their opinion. They, don't, they, they actually like a good conversation, maybe they, a good argument, okay? And they would like to win it. That's a peace breaker, okay? Peace faker, think Aunt Sally at Thanksgiving, okay? She's acting like everything's okay. It's like, you hate him. Why are you acting like that's okay? You are, you know, and actually you'll know you're a peace faker because you'll become very resentful. You'll become very bitter. All, all revenge will move to your fantasy life. And you'll freak out and flip out one day and not know why. And it's because you're responding to 10 years or something, not, you know, because you've been, you've been being a peace faker. There's peacekeepers. Peacekeepers, we never talk about it. As soon as, this is Aunt Jody, you know, and it's something's wrong, we don't talk about it. Oh, pastor mashed potatoes. We never talk about it. You know that person. Some of you, like, I don't, that person doesn't exist in my family. You are that person, okay? If you don't know that, that you are the person, it's like, this is what happens. And then there are the peacemakers. And here's the important thing about peacemakers. Peacemakers say, I want to defeat the problem so I can have the relationship. I want to defeat the problem so I can have the relationship with the person. I don't necessarily want to win, right? You don't want to win. I've, I've said this before, but if you win, like, do you want to win an argument with your wife? No, because then you live with a loser, right? You don't want to live with a loser. It's like you actually want to say, okay, how can this be a win-win situation? How can we have the relationship? So you have to be willing, and, and this is part of it. We have to just be willing to have lots of conversations with each other. We have to be willing to listen to each other. We have to be willing to, to, give, to be full of truth and grace. We have to be willing to pray for one another. 
And so what we see here is, is there's, this, there's this idea that Christianity sometimes has to bring more conflicts before peace is on the other side of that. And we, we're finally in, introduced to a lady named Anna. I want you to see Anna as this story ends in verse 36. So the first old guy was Simeon. The second old lady is Anna. And you would, we would actually say her situation is probably worse. I don't know if any girl in here says I want, or any lady in here, would, would grow up and say, I want my life to turn out like Anna's. Let me read it. And there was a prophetess, and that just means that she loved the word of God and loved to teach the word of God. Anna, the daughter of Phanel, of the tribe of Asher. And then here's the description of her. We get a little bit more of a description of her and where her life stage is. <clears throat> she was advanced in years, so she's very old, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. So she gets married. We don't know at what age, probably young, because most people did. And then seven years later, her husband dies. We don't know why or how. It also appears that she had no children. Because if she had children, she probably wouldn't be in the temple like this. They probably would be taking care of her. She seems to also be poor. Here's what it says. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. If you write in your Bible, you might want to write next to Anna, the opposite of a Hallmark movie, <laughs> right? What is a Hallmark movie, right? You, I, don't act like you've not seen them, okay? I look all the guys aren't making eye contact with me. I know you've seen them too. Okay, now what happens in a Hallmark movie is basically, you know, some young girl meets some guy who has an accent, right? And is from a different country and happens to be a king, you know? <laughs> I ruined every Hallmark movie for you, but that's what happens. And then, and then you know, they get married, and in an hour and a half, everything's amazing. And that's a Hallmark movie, and you, we see them, and they're rom-coms, right, romantic comedies, and we love them. Um, but but her, her story is the exact opposite. It's a very hard life, right? And, and what's interesting is it's good to think about because a lot of people look at something and they say, well, if I got married, I'd be happy. Well, actually, Anna got married and then lost her husband. I mean, sometimes you get something and then you lose it. And that's really, really hard. You know, she probably, we think, again, this is a little conjecture, but we think she probably couldn't have kids. I mean, you know, seven years married, no kids, they probably struggle with infertility. She, so she's, she's single, she's old, she's poor, she has no husband, she has no kids. And she, we're told she's doing three things. And it's like, you know, it, the, 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 the kind of word is she's waiting, but we're told she's doing three things. And I, and I just give them to you as, as I think three things for this year for us. Uh, as we head into, I mean, I don't know. We, none of us know when this is over. It's like, and whatever over means. Is it over in March? Is it over in May? Is it over next fall? I mean, when do things go back to the new and next normal? I, I don't know. But as we wait and watch, she does three things. Number one, she's incredibly grateful for what she has. It says she gave thanks. And I just, I just think we could grow so much as a culture and as a church and just being grateful. You can always be great. This is really practical, helpful thing that you can help people with as well. But you can always be grateful for two reasons, because things could be worse. And things, if you're a Christian, will ultimately get better in heaven. So that's how you know it. So like, you know, I've given you this example before, but you know, there's one thing to have your kid in the hospital. That's really bad. And you might think that's the worst it is. Nope. Kid in hospital, no healthcare is worse. You might think, well, it doesn't get worse than that. No, it does. Kid in hospital, no healthcare, marriage falling apart. You, you want to see, see someone sad. You want to see someone uh, almost unable to swim. The waters are so deep. It's like, and, it, and there's actually, if we had time, there's many levels below that. You can always stop and be super thankful for what you have, even when life is really, really hard and really, really dark. 
The second thing is we can always be grateful for what God promises in the future. This is what the apostle Paul says. Paul says, hey, I'm suffering. He writes about that a lot in Romans 8 and 9, Romans 7 and 8. And basically he says, but the, the, the future glory that is gonna be revealed is not even worth comparing with our current sufferings. And Paul was suffering more than, dare I say, any of us will. The second thing she does is she's committed to spiritual disciplines. It says she's worshiping, she's fasting. Why is she in the temple? Because that's where the scrolls are. She's committed to Bible study and the word of God and hear good teaching. So that's what the spiritual disciplines are. How do I continue to grow? The, the, the Puritans used to call the spiritual disciplines the means of grace. How does the grace of God get into me and change my heart, change my mind, change my soul? The answer is the, the spiritual, uh, spiritual disciplines. The third thing is she's in the temple. Now it's interesting. The story begins within the temple. The story ends with her in the temple. Why? Because the temple is where the people of God are. Now, I understand some of us have to stay at home. Others of us are in the VHQ venue. Others of us are here. We're across different services. But there's gotta be a commitment to wait together. What, what community does is it makes the bad times half as bad and the good times twice as good. That's what community does. So I, I just wanna end together, if you'll bow and pray with me, just to pray for ourselves and for our church and for our city in this season as we head into a very different holidays and a very different Christmas. Lord, we come to you right now in Jesus' name, we just thank you for the story of Simeon and Anna. Lord, we thank you that this whole series and, all, and that Christmas is just a reminder, Lord, that you love every person in every place. You love all peoples. You love all types of people. You love the young, poor couple. You love the old widow. You love the old man. You love the, the hardworking, blue-collar shepherd. We'll see next week. You love the, the wise men. Uh, you, you, you love everybody, Lord. Well, we, we just come to you right now and I just, I just ask right now, Lord, I pray that every person, I just want to give every person here just an opportunity to see Jesus Christ by faith. That's the goal of Christmas, to see in, ba- in the baby Jesus, the Savior of the world, God with us. Lord, I pray for the ability. Lord, give us the ability to share Christ with our family and friends. We're going to uniquely be with them in the next 10 days, Lord. Lord, I pray for our church to be known for two virtues that our society no longer values, endurance and perseverance. Lord, I I, I thank you for the old men and women in our church. Lord, I pray they would be encouraged. I pray they would invest in the next generation. I pray for the young in our church that they would value the wisdom of the old. I pray for the old that they would value the strength of the youth. Lord, help us to wait together, Lord in this unique season. Lord, help us to seek you in the spiritual disciplines, to live together in community as much as is possible, Lord, and to be grateful for everything that we have. We pray this in your name, amen.